come now to the time in the service when we turn our hearts and our minds uh, specifically to the Word of God preached. And uh, this uh, fall, I believe you guys are going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is one of the most wonderful and terrifying pieces of literature ever written, as we'll see this morning. Uh, And uh, we hope that what you see throughout this series is that the Sermon on the Mount is an ideal too high for us to realize, but so beautiful and majestic that the Lord himself would come down to live it among us. That is an expression both of his love and his grace to us and the way that we should live in the world. So we hope that at once it might terrify us but it terrifies us so that we can go to Christ and find grace and freedom in it and then live that out in our daily lives. So we're going to have Talitha read that, and then we will turn our hearts to it. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that, this comes from evil. From Matthew 5, 33 through 37. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to this beautiful word that you have given. Father, you say that the law is good and holy, Father. You say that the law revives the soul. That's hard for us to believe, especially when we come to a passage like this. And so we pray, Father, that you give us ears to hear. We pray that you give us eyes to see. We pray that you give us a mind to understand. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would find life in your word right now pray that this word would revive our souls. We pray that it would point us to Christ and away from ourselves. We pray that it would show us how to love our neighbors better and how to love you with all of our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This summer, I was doing marriage counseling with two of my former students who just got married. And uh, before we went into the marriage counseling session, the, the guy called me and he said, hey, I, we're, we had some conflict this week. I want to talk about the conflict during our marriage counseling. Do you think that would be okay? I said, sure. Sounds great. So we get in there to the, mar- to the premarital counseling. We make some small talk. And he says, okay, so this is what happened this week. Uh, we were supposed to go to Tulsa on Friday to sign thank you cards. Well, I had a long week, I got tired, I got exhausted. When Friday came around, my buddies called me and they said, hey, uh, we're gonna go play some disc golf. Do you wanna come? And he was like, man, I had a rough week. I'm kinda tired, I don't really wanna drive to Tulsa. I'd rather hang out with my buddies. I don't really wanna do those thank you cards. And every man in here understands exactly what he's talking about, right? He was torn. Here he'd made a promise to his fiancée that he was going to come to Tulsa and, and complete these thank you cards. But then he had his buddies who wanted him to stay in Stillwater and relax. 
What was he going to do? So he did what most of us would have done. He called his fiance and he tried to wiggle out of the promise. He said, do I really have to come to Stillwater? Do I really have to come to Tulsa to sign these cards? Like, is that really a big deal? Do you really need me to do this? And, you know, kind of almost putting it back on her. And she said, yeah, it's a big deal. You need to come. (laughs) You need to come to Tulsa, sign these thank you cards. You promised me that you would come. And so he came to marriage counseling, premarital counseling, and he asked me, as he's relaying this story, he, he, he explains it all to me, and he looks me dead in the eye, and he says, do I really have to keep all the promises that I make to her? And to which I thought about it for one second, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, yup. And at that moment, his face dropped like this. And I said, and that's exactly why you need the gospel. And this marriage will never work unless you believe it. When we come to this teaching on oaths in the Sermon on the Mount, I think we all come to it and we we look at Jesus the same way that that young man looked at me. And we say, do I really have to keep all of my promises? And Jesus says, Yep. And that's hard for us because we live in a world of broken promises. We live in a world where people have broken their promises to us, and that's hurt us. We live in a world where broken promises are acceptable in most circumstances, where we can find an excuse, a reason, uh, a feeling, a thought, some way to wiggle out of our promises. And what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that we need to be promise keepers. We need to be people who are true to our word and that keep our promises. The Sermon on the Mount speaks into a world of broken promises. But what it tells us is, one, that we need to keep those promises, but it also gives us good news. And the good news is this. The Sermon on the Mount shows us that God transforms us from promise breakers into promise keepers. And that's what I want you to see this morning, that through the power of the gospel, we who continually break promise after promise can be changed and transformed into people who more and more can keep our promises to those we love, those around us, and those in this world. So we're going to look at that this morning under three headings. First, we're going to look at promises broken. Second, we're going to look at promises kept. And then thirdly, we're going to look at promises fulfilled. The first thing I want you to see is promises broken. And we see that here in verse 33. We see Jesus starting out by talking about the Pharisees and the way they break promises. Look at verse 33. It says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Okay? So this is a Pharisaical interpretation of an Old Testament teaching. This Old Testament teaching starts with the ninth commandment, which is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, narrowly, this commandment addresses giving testimony in a court case or in a a situation like a court case against your neighbor. And it's saying that in that situation, you need to be a person who tells the truth. But broadly speaking, the ninth commandment tells us that all of our interactions with our neighbor are to be marked with truth. So it's forbidding lying 
And it's commanding us to be people of the truth, to be people who interact honestly, faithfully, and consistently with the other people in the world around us. And this makes total sense because the law is an expression of God's nature and who he is. What is God? God is love. If God is love, and it would be unloving for God to tell a lie. Therefore, it would be unloving for God to tell us he's going to do something and break a promise. God is love, and that means that God is honest and trustworthy, and God keeps his promises. So we, as people who are made in God's image, that he loves, and he wants us to have healthy, strong relationships, tells us that the way to have those healthy, strong, trusting relationships is by keeping our word, by being trustworthy people who make promises and keep them. And if we don't, that causes uh, anger and damage and hurt to all our relationships, And there's a great illustration of this in the movie Liar, Liar by Jim Carrey. Basically, the entire movie is just like one long illustration of this point. Jim Carrey is a lawyer who makes his living by standing up and lying. Now, if you're a lawyer, I'm not saying that you necessarily stand up and lie for a living. This is just the illustration from the sermon, okay? I want all the lawyers to hate me for the rest of this sermon and the rest of my life. So Jim Carrey, he's a lawyer. He's really good. He lies a lot. Not only does he lie at work, But he lies to his wife, and he lies to his child. He continually breaks promises to his son. Well, his son is going to have a birthday party. He's supposed to show up for the birthday party. He misses the birthday party again. He hurts his son's feelings again. So his son's wish, his birthday wish, when he blows out the candle, is that his dad cannot tell a lie for 24 hours. The wish is magically granted. We don't know how, but right, he grants a wish. And the rest of the movie is 24 hours of Jim Carrey who has to tell the truth in any and all situations. And it's, it's really actually a pretty hilarious movie. Like, it's, it's pretty funny. And um, can you just imagine like all the ways in which we kind of like shade the truth that we lie a little bit? Just imagine if we couldn't do that, all the things that would come out of our mouth. Yeah, it's two and a half hours of that, right? Of just that coming out. But what Jim Carrey sees in the movie as it, as it goes is that while his lies uh, in some ways made him a good lawyer and very successful lawyer, they destroyed all of his relationships around him. And he realized that if he's ever going to have good, healthy, loving relationships, he was going to have to be a man of the truth, a man of his word. And so at the end of the movie, he, he, he commits himself to keeping his word to his wife and to his son. Right? That's what God wants for us. That was his original intent. That's the way the law was created, was so that we would have good, healthy, loving relationships based on truth. So that's the, that's the Old Testament law. But what happened was this. The Pharisees perverted that. They twisted it. And they developed an elaborate system which would basically allow them to wiggle out of their promises without looking like they were breaking their promises, right? They created, through their own laws, sort of a wiggle room so that they could get out of of what they said they were going to do and so that they would bring God's law down and make it attainable. And Jesus points this out uh, here in this section. He implies that they swear by different objects, and by swearing by different objects, they're trying to avoid God's authority 
and they're trying to avoid God's uh, purview. They're trying to, basically, they're trying to break the law in a way that God can't see it. Uh, Jesus explains this a little more explicitly in Matthew 23, verse six, uh, Matthew 23. I'm just going to read one example that he gives. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anybody swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. So what they would do is they would say, yeah, I will do this, and I'm going to swear to you based on the temple. And then if they didn't do it, then they'd come back and say, well, you know, I, didn't, I swore by the temple, but I didn't swear by the gold on the temple. And so that allows me to get out of this promise without essentially sinning or giving the appearance that I've sinned. So what have they done? They've taken God's law. They've tried to bring it down towards attainable, one, so they could have their own self-righteousness, and two, to make it appear like they were good, honest people. Now, in our culture, we haven't developed an elaborate system of, of oaths and promises and a hierarchy of things that you can swear by to get out of your promises. But we do have the same pharisaical heart that tries to pull the law down so that we can keep it and so we can break promises and save face. And we do this in a lot of ways. We do this mostly informally, I think. Um, what happens is we have, we have promises and commitments we make. Normally they're not formal oaths, they're not formal vows, um, but we make promises, right? We make promises to our spouse. Uh, even in the, in the context of a spouse and a marriage, we actually take a formal oath. In marriage, we promise to do certain things for our spouse. Uh, we take an oath when we join a church. We commit as members of the church. We take vows. And then we also will informally sometimes commit to things in the church. We commit to volunteer in the nursery or to help with setup or to cook meals or just whatever. Right? Then we have um, promises that we make with our friends. We're going to go to a party. We're going to go get coffee. We have promises that we make at work. So all around us, we're making promises uh, mostly informally, but sometimes we're making formal oaths and vows to people like our spouses and institutions like the church, right? But then when we make those promises, then what happens is normally to keep those promises, it begins to bump up against what's going on in our heart. It begins to bump up against our heart idols. It begins to bump up our, against our desire for approval, our desire for comfort, our desire for control over our lives. Right? To keep a promise, we might have to sacrifice somebody else's approval, or we might have to sacrifice control over our schedule. So when that begins, that promise begins to bump up against our idols, then what do we do? We look for excuses to try to wiggle our way out of it. Well, when I, you know, whenever I said that I would uh, go set up, I mean, I, I just meant, you know, I might come set up if they needed me, if they helped me, and nobody really contacted me, so I don't have to go set up. Or whenever I could, you know, whenever I committed to do this thing, I, you know, I didn't know that this was going to pop up in my schedule, and I'd really rather do this anyways, so I'm just going to tell them that I'm not going to go, and, and it'll be okay. It'll be fine. Or just a classic, like, I just don't feel like going today. And I didn't know that whenever I told them I would go, but I just don't feel like it. We create the excuse, then we break the promise, and that allows us to do it without giving up our self-righteousness 
and, without, and, and by giving the appearance that we're still good people that keep our word. I'll never forget a time whenever I did this uh, in college. It was very clear. Uh, I was, it was later in college. I was a senior or a junior or something like that. And I was home for the summer. I'd just taken a job with one of the local newspapers to cover some sporting events for them. And the, the boss of the newspaper very plainly told me, hey, I want you to go to this baseball tournament and I want you to cover it. I said, okay, sure, I'll do that. Well, when it came time for the tournament to come around, my girlfriend who lived in Texas asked me to come visit her. She actually wasn't my girlfriend. I wanted, me, I wanted her to be my girlfriend. So I had this commitment I had made to the newspaper to cover this baseball tournament, and I had this prospective girlfriend who wanted me to come to Texas and visit her. Which promise was I going to keep? And so, I, of course, I kept the promise to the girl, or that's the promise that I wanted to keep, right? And it bumped up against all my idols, right? It bumped up against my approval idol because I realized that if I went with the newspaper and, and did my job, then she might not like me as much. It bumped up against my control idol because now I didn't have power over my schedule. I told them I was going to do the tournament, but what I really wanted to do was go and be with this girl. It bumped up against my comfort idol because I was going to get the love and affirmation and comfort of going and being with this girl, whereas if I covered the baseball tournament, I was going to be around a bunch of smelly 12-year-olds that didn't really care who I was. Right? So all of my idols were being collided against in this promise situation, and I found a way to wiggle out of it. Basically, I lied. And I called the, the, the it was funny, I just didn't show up. I didn't do the job. And then the, the editor of the newspaper called me. and was like, hey, where's my stories about this baseball tournament? And I started out with, well, I don't, I don't really remember promising that. I'm not really sure if I said that. That wasn't really what I meant. And then he was like, no, you said it. You sat in my office and you said this thing that you would go to the, cover this tournament. And I said, well, I'm just not going to do it. I'm sorry. And I backed out. That was not keeping my word. That was operating like a Pharisee. That was the heart of a Pharisee right there. Have you been in a situation where you've done that? Have you been in a situation where you made a promise, and then as you were trying to keep the promise, or as the promise was, uh, needed to be kept, all of a sudden began to bump up against all of your heart idols, and you found a way to wiggle out of it and justify not keeping it? I think we do this a lot in our culture, especially because we're a culture of nice people, especially in the church we want to be nice people. And so for us to maintain our, our nice facade, we have to create a reason not to do things that appears righteous when it's not. Sometimes in the church, we, all, we even call this being led to do something or being called to do something, right? We make a promise, but then we feel called to do something else and so we break that promise. I'm amazed. Nobody ever feels called to keep the promise. You guys ever notice that? Like, um, anyways, I, I just think it's funny. Like, we're called to go break the promise and go do something else. But I'm not sure everybody, I'm not sure a college students ever came up to me and have said, I feel really called to keep this promise. I think that's the heart of a Pharisee operating in us and operating in the church. And it's into that heart that Jesus speaks. And he talks about keeping our promises. We see it here in verses 34 to 37. 
He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath at all by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What is Jesus saying? Jesus, remember the kingdom on the mount is Jesus describing what his kingdom people look like and how to live in his kingdom. So Jesus is saying that my kingdom people ought not to participate in this system of pharisaical oath breaking. He's saying if you're my people, if you're my kingdom, then you can't function the way the Pharisees function. You can't participate in their oath breaking. Why not? Well, one, because God is authoritative over all things, and it's simply silly to believe that you can swear by something under which God does not have authority. He has authority over all things. And also, you can't swear by anything that God doesn't see because he sees all things. He even goes so far as to say that when we break promises, that evil is operating in our heart. And I think he says that because he knows that Satan is the father of lies, and that when we break our promises, no matter how small or trivial we're being, that's the operation of our flesh under the, um, under the confusion, the disobedience of, of evil, of Satan. That it's, not, that it's not kingdom living, it's not the operation of the Holy Spirit, it's not, we're not living out the image of our Heavenly Father when we find ways to break these promises. And so he says, if you're in my kingdom, if you're my kingdom people, then simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. And that's very simple, right? It's like if somebody asks me to do something, I'm going to say yes if I'm going to do it. And if they ask me to do something I'm not going to do it, I'm going to say no. And that's it. He's saying my kingdom people are marked by truthfulness and consistency. What he's not saying is that all oaths and all vows are bad, right? God himself takes oaths in the Old Testament. We read about that earlier in one of the uh, scripture readings, right? We talked about in Hebrews, it talks about how God made oaths. But why did God make those oaths? What was he doing? He was reassuring us sinful doubters that he was going to keep his word. God instituted oaths and vows in the Old Testament. He regulated it. Why? Because of our sinfulness. He was trying to restrain sin, but that wasn't God's original intent. God's original intent was that we would be people who were so marked by truthfulness and honesty and consistency that we could just say yes or no. And that's how we lived in his kingdom. And we know, I think we kind of get this in places like Owasso. Uh, it's, I think there's, there's there's farming in Owasso. There's the good old boy nature, I think, in Owasso, just like there is in Coweta, Oklahoma. And my dad is a farmer in Coweta, Oklahoma. And he operates on a system, I think, similar to what Jesus is talking about. One day, my dad was talking about a man who owed him some money for some crops. Owed him thousands of dollars. And I said, Dad, like, how do you know that that guy is going to fulfill that promise? How do you know he's going to pay you back for those crops? And he goes, well, I just do. I've known Bob for years, and he's a pretty honest guy, and he's always paid me back before. And I said, well, do you have like a contract or something? He goes, no. 
And he was telling me about some, uh, some combining that's, that he had done, that, that somebody else had done for him. And, and, and this, this young man had came and combined some crops for him. And it, my dad said, frankly, he hadn't paid him in years. And I said, what do you mean you haven't paid him in years? He goes, well, you know, I've had a couple bad years. Uh, and so I'm going to pay him in a few years whenever I catch up. And I said, does he know how much you owe him? And he says, yeah. And I said, so like, why hasn't he came to get the money? He goes, well, you know something good for him. Like, he knows that I'm going to pay him. I said, you don't have a contract or anything like that? He goes, no. We just shook on it. I think in some ways that's what Jesus is saying. That's what life in the kingdom is like. That our lives are so marked by consistency and honesty that we say yes or no and people take us at our word. That we're marked by our word. What about public oaths? That's a good question here. Like, part of us functioning in secular society is sometimes we have to pay, take public oaths, right? If you're a doctor or a lawyer, you have to take an oath. Um, if you're going on trial, you have to take an oath. Luther, Luther and Calvin distinguished between private oaths and public oaths. And what they said is private oaths should be unnecessary based on what Jesus is saying. Like we in the, in the family of God here in the kingdom ought to know each other so well that we don't have to make oaths and promises to each other. But when we go out in the public, those people don't know us. They don't know our heart. And so to establish trust in them, it's okay for us to participate in those oaths. It's okay for the doctor to take the Hippocratic oath. I think that's what they take. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know. If you have any doctors in here, correct me later, right? But it's okay for them to take that because they're establishing honesty and trustworthiness with the medical community. Are there any exceptions? My wife asked me this this week when we were talking about the sermon. I would say, um, I think the only exception to us keeping our promises is this, um, is providence. Basically, in James 5, James says, uh, we shouldn't say, you know, next year we're going to go do this and we're going to go do that, as if we're the ones who can determine necessarily that that is definitely going to happen. And what he's saying is, in the Lord's providence, things might come up that prohibit us from, keep, from doing what we're saying. And so we shouldn't presume that we're omnipotent and all-powerful and that we're definitely going to do everything that we want to do. Okay? So there are times when things are going to come up that cause us to break our promises. Uh, this happened to me this week. I was supposed to meet with another campus minister who's the head of another campus ministry. We've been trying to get together and get coffee. About 30 minutes before we were supposed to meet, he texted me and said, hey, I'm going to have to reschedule. I need to meet another time. I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. What happened? And he said, well, my wife is out of town. My son got sick at school. I've got to go pick him up and take him, take him home and take care of him. Okay? So even though we'd set this meeting up a couple weeks ago, he had to break a promise to me because he had to take care of his kid. That's God's providence. That's okay. He's not violating any commandment or any laws because he had to reschedule. Right? So... <laughs> As I've sort of been feeling all week, if you, if you begin to like understand that everything that Jesus is talking about here, and you begin to understand the weight of what this teaching is, you quickly realize that you can't possibly live up to this standard, that we don't live up to this standard, that we can't meet these expectations. We probably feel a little bit like Mark Twain felt. Mark Twain used to say that he had dreams of a gigantic Bible pressing in on his chest. I have felt that gigantic Bible all week. As I'm preparing for this sermon, you can imagine, I'm thinking about like all the O's, all the promises I've made and how I can't keep those. And even you sitting in your seat might be thinking, man, I broke that promise and that promise and I lied to that person. 
and you're starting to feel the weight of the text pressing in on you. That's because the Sermon on the Mount not only requires That's because the Sermon on the Mount requires not only the fulfillment of our promises, but it requires God to fulfill his promises to us. It requires not only us to fulfill promises, but it, it requires God to fulfill his promises to us. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's really interesting. Um, not just the whole Sermon on the Mount, but this little section. It's, it's got two bookends, right? So if you look in verse 20, it's for, it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have to have more righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees who've created this system of oaths so that they can give the appearance that they're righteous. And then you get to the end of this section. The whole section, he's sort of, ref, he's sort of refuting everything the Pharisees are saying. And then he gets to the end, and what does he say in verse 48? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this whole section is presenting a standard that's perfection. He's saying, look at the righteousness of the Pharisees. Look at this system of laws they've created to try to pull the law down and keep it. You can't do that. You have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And here we see the ultimate function, the primary use of the Sermon on the Mount, just like the law in the Old Testament, the primary use is not for us to build our own self-righteousness. It's not for us to save ourselves, right? It's to reveal our need for Christ. That moment, whenever I sat there with that young man and I said, yes, you have to keep all your promises, and that's why you need the gospel. That's the moment that we come to in the Sermon on the Mount when we fully realize it. We fully understand what Jesus is talking about. We realize that God is calling us to a standard of living which we could never attain. And that's why we need Jesus. And that's why we need the gospel. It shows us that we fall short and that we have to be saved by the one who always keeps his promises. The entire story of the Old Testament that we've been studying all semester at RUF is a story about God keeping his promises to rescue his people. They were covenant breakers. They were liars. They were oath breakers. They were people that couldn't keep their promises all through the Old Testament. And God said, I promise that I am going to come and rescue those people. When Jesus comes in the New Testament, he comes to people who were promise breakers, who were oath breakers, who were not righteous. And he says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. See, the Sermon on the Mount presents the ideal kingdom citizen in God's kingdom. And that ideal kingdom citizen is not you or I, it's Jesus. He's the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's the one who came to fulfill all the promises. That's why later in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And then he goes on to say that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me translate that to you in terms of promises. God came to make him who never broke a promise to pay for the sins 
of all the promise breakers so that they might have his righteousness, so that they might be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect. So when you look at the oaths and the promises and the vows that you've broken, don't just look at yourself, look at Christ who pays for that sin, who rescues you from that sin, who is the ultimate promise keeper. Look at God, your heavenly father, who loves you so much that he would send his son to keep all of his promises for you, all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then look to the one who rose from the grave, Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God in heaven because he loves you and he cares for you. And he promises you that if you have faith in him, that you will sit with your heavenly father in heaven. That's his promise to you, that by faith in Jesus Christ, you have Jesus' righteousness, and in Christ you are perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that changes everything. That actually transforms you, it transforms your heart and your mind, and it allows you to keep your promises. It meets the basic needs of your heart that your idols pretend to meet. Remember back earlier we said that we make a promise, that promise bumps up against our idols, We find a way, an excuse to break that promise, and then we try to maintain our self-righteousness. When the gospel comes into our lives, the gospel meets all our deepest needs so that those idols are removed and we can actually keep our promises. For instance, if you have an approval idol, if you struggle with wanting everybody's approval, then what's going to happen? You're going to overcommit yourself. That's what I do right here. Why? Because John comes to you and says, will you do this? And you say, yes, I will do this. And then Sally comes to you and says, will you do this? And you say, yes, I will do this. And you can't do both of them. You can't get both of their approval. So you have to break their promise. You have to break a promise to somebody. And Jesus says that you have the love and the approval through the gospel of your heavenly father so that you can say yes when you need to say yes and no when you need to say no. Until you see that you have the love and acceptance of Jesus, you're going to be a constant overcommitter. But if you see that you have the approval and the love and acceptance of your Heavenly Father, then you can say no. And you can say yes. What if your idol is control? What if you want to have control over your entire schedule and you make a promise and then it comes time to keep that promise and you don't want to do it because they're not in charge of your schedule, you are. Once you understand the gospel, you realize that Jesus sits on the throne and that your heavenly Father is in charge of all schedules. And you go, okay, this may not be what I like. It may not be what I want. But I know that you ultimately have a plan that's better than mine, and I can submit to it. You know that everything that comes to you comes through nail-scarred hands. And if everything comes to you through nail-scarred hands, even your schedule, then you can give it up to him, and you can trust him with it. What if it's comfort and security? What if you just don't feel like doing it? Your heavenly father meets all your deepest needs in Christ and he shows you your loving savior who didn't feel like going to the cross in Gethsemane. But he did it because he loves you and he promises to meet all your deepest needs in Christ. And so you go, I don't feel like doing this. This is not what I want to do but I have a loving Father that loves me. I have a heavenly Savior that cares for me. And so I'm going to go do it. 
And I'm going to trust that he's going to provide all my deepest needs. Until you see that, until you see that Jesus Christ meets all your deepest needs, until we see that, we're going to be promise breakers. But when we see that the gospel changes us, the gospel meets all of our deepest needs, then our word will become yes, our word will become no, and we're more and more going to grow in Christ into people who become promise keepers. That's the power of the gospel. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't sent to save us. It was sent to show us our need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we, say, as we, as we believe him, as we live out the kingdom, we live out this life of grace. We don't obey to get God's love. We obey because God loves us. We don't keep our oaths so that God will keep loving us. We keep our oaths because God loves us and because he has met all of our deepest needs in Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray together that God would help us believe the gospel and empower us to become more and more his people that keep our promises. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that all the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We, pr- we thank you for giving us your word that shows us a good way to live, an honest way to live, that at the same time exposes all of our heart idols and all of our self-righteousness. Lord, I pray that when those things are exposed, we wouldn't just try to fix them ourselves, We wouldn't lie about them. We wouldn't shove them around and cover them up. But I pray that we'd bring them to you and we would see that all of our deepest needs have been met in Christ. We see that you have paid for our sin on the cross. And we see that because you have done those things, we can become the kind of people who go out and live lives of faithfulness and honesty and integrity with each other in the kingdom and with the world around us. Father, we pray that you would make us more and more your people who keep, your prom- who keep our promises because you have kept yours, to love us, to accept us, and to change us by the power of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.